0: Uh, kind of break from what we were doing and talk about culture and how it applies to the household of God. And uh, this is in continuation to what we um, ended up talking about last week, so I thought we need to clarify it further. And culture anyways is something that the people of God must possess and we might just focus on the household of God and then go on to other parts of our lives that the culture of Uh, the king applies to. So, why do we need to talk about this? Because there is the spirit of this age, eh? There is the spirit of this age. And so, are you saying it's a demonic power or something? Let's just call it um, the prevalent nature of how things are in the world. There's a German word, zeitgeist, which talks about this idea of the spirit that is prevalent in a place. And it begins to affect everything. It just is like, um, have you seen the movie Matrix? It's like that. It's everywhere. And so what happens is the spirit of this age uh, always tries to fit you, fits you into the mold of prevalent culture. Into the mold of prevalent culture. That's, That's one of the things it does. Paul talked about it. He, instead of calling it the spirit of the age, in Colossians he begins to talk about it as the traditions of men, the philosophies of the world, and the elemental spirits of the world. He uses the word stoichia, which means, uh, which scholars are still debating, but basically it it, it is both the things that make up the prevalent culture and that which is uh, spiritual from the evil side. So it tries to fit you into the mold of prevalent culture. And what, is, what are two things that we can look at today that is so uh, so easily identifiable in prevalent culture? One, it exalts the individual. It exalts the individual. And two, it elevates... It elevates majority opinion over truth and biblical patterns. So you gotta be aware of this, eh? It exalts the individual and it elevates majority opinion over truth and over Biblical patterns. And both are diametrically opposed to what God is building. One of the things He did when He took our fragmented lives and baptized us into the body is to suddenly say to us that yes, I created you and I have given you um, a personality and individuality that is so unique but I need you to know that it is no longer primary, it is secondary to something called the new man or the body of Christ. And when we still cause the individual to be exalted, be it a pastor or be it someone who's not, doesn't matter, it goes against what Christ is building on the earth. And two, it elevates majority opinion over truth and biblical patterns, where because a group of people say so, it becomes say so. Not true. And this will if this is prevalent culture, then know that it will try to worm its way into the church. And when things like this worm their way into the church, someone needs to take a stand and say, thus far and no further. And that someone must be you. You think that that someone must be a pastor or someone must be a leader. No, that someone must be you. It's also a culture, the spirit of this age also castrates kingdom potency. It castrates kingdom potency. It castrates kingdom potency. By valuing, by one, valuing facts over truth. Valuing facts over truth. By valuing common sense over power as in the power of god and valuing restraint free independence restraint free free independence over dependence and order this then also should be countered. Because remember, one of the things we are trying to create on earth is a counter-culture. And if you're trying to create a counter-culture, you can't allow this to happen. Who can't allow this to happen? The pastor? No, yes, the shepherd has a responsibility, but so do you. The powerful thing about culture is once culture becomes dominant, it becomes very hard to operate outside of it. Try going to Saudi Arabia. And behaving as you want and see what happens, because the culture has become the dominant culture. Therefore, you have to begin to either adjust to it or decide that this is in the place. And so, when it comes to kingdom culture, it, it castrates kingdom, the, the prevalent spirit of the age castrates kingdom potency by valuing facts over truth. Yeah, that might be what Jesus said, but this is the fact, and you might say that Jesus does it, I haven't seen it done, and this is the fact, and so that's it. Not true. It must be opposed, because it's only a matter of time before it will undermine. Two, common sense over power. That it would make more sense if he did it this way. True, but if the power of God wants to operate, then we'll have to obey obedience always releases power sacrifice always provokes fire Elijah obeyed, power showed and then the last one is restraint free independence versus dependence in order restraint free independence as in not only do I want to be independent it's the prevalent nature of the spirit of the world right now I want to be independent, you can't tell me what to do and I have to be restraint free. You cannot impose anything on me. Versus dependence and order. Because right from the beginning, God is a God of order. And remember this, we said this long ago. We must be God-dependent and body-reliant. God-dependent and body-reliant. And when this, is, when this rises up its ugly head, it must be stopped. Not chopped, it must be Stopped. Because this is the spirit of the age. And to allow this into the bride dressed in blemishless silk, white, is evil. Third, It's a spirit that contaminates. Make sure that this message, if if there are people here who who aren't here to listen to this, tell them to listen to this. Because we all need to hear this. This will be heard in Bahrain. This will be heard in Australia. This will be heard in different parts of the world. But we may need to make sure that people here hear it too. So Remy and Hamari are hearing it. Anyone else who is missing needs to hear this. Third, it's a spirit that contaminates, it's a spirit that contaminates with, this is from Colossians 2.8, with the philosophies of men, with the traditions of men, and with demonic principles. Paul says elemental spirits of the world. These are the three prevalent things from the spirit of the age and they must be countered. And we will fail. Sometimes our present philosophy might be warped actually. What if what Acts 29 presently believes is warped? What if some of the things we practice are the traditions of men? But if we open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit, he will either send people, or send the Word, or will send um, enough truth to come out from within the body to say, there's something wrong, we need to fix it. Because what if we are already caught up in this? What if some of the things I'm teaching are traditions of men, or the philosophies of the world? And if that is the case then we have to correct it. This is not some decree from uh, the top. This is not a pastor trying to tell you to behave. But if you want to create a counterculture, these things cannot be allowed. And if we allow these things after... God begins to bring up truth. If we allow these things, then when you don't believe in practice what God has said, usually deception follows. Usually deception follows. Uh, it says so in Second 2 Thessalonians 2.10, how when truth is refused, deception follows. And not only that, once deception follows, you begin to circulate falsehoods. If you go to numbers 14:36 in the message numbers 14:36 in the message you'll see that when people don't believe or do what they're told by God then deception follows and it's only a matter of time before they start circulating falsehoods numbers 14 verse 36 from the message here's what it says so it happened that the men Moses sent to scout the land mm-hmm. returned to circulate false rumors about the land causing the entire community to grumble against Moses. It's only natural. These are just natural progressions when I decide that I am not going to um, subscribe to, listen to, or practice the truth of what God has said. So that's the prevalent nature of the spirit of the age. Any questions before we go on to the culture of God? Jeremy, can I share? Where's Jeremy? Jeremy, can I share what you said when you first came to this church about the questions part? Yeah, Jeremy had come to the church and uh, she she was wondering why people ask questions in the middle of the service. So she called a friend of hers and she said, I think it's a Canadian thing. Sorry? You called up your brother and you said, uh, that this is a, it seems like a Canadian thing. They ask questions in the middle of the service. So, um, till so till someone told you, no, it's not a normal thing, right? Yeah. And so all to say, why do we need to ask questions in the middle of a service? Because it is through debate, argument, discussion, and bringing up counterpoints, that the truth can be settled. And so to take that away at any point is not going to be happening in this church for a long time because things must be challenged. Things must be challenged. Pardon? Or clarified. Things must be challenged or clarified. We'll talk about how it should be challenged and clarified. We'll talk about that. When I talk about challenge and clarify, you will see in Acts 15 how the word used in Acts 15 is, and there was a debate. But there is, a, there is an intent and a way it should be done, and we'll be talking about that today. Okay. Okay, if there are no questions on the spirit of the age, then let's talk about the culture of God. Culture, if you want to define it, is the Collective mindset is the collective mindset of a people that one, governs their conduct and response. Two, shapes their nature and purpose. And three, births, their vision, and future. Culture is a collective mindset of a people where a people collectively think a certain way. And in thinking that way, They begin to, it begins to govern their conduct and their response. It begins to shape their nature and their purpose. And it begins to birth their vision and the future. That's what culture does. And so it's critical. Every church must have God culture, and then after that, have traits that are from God that are given to them to hold on to. Everything okay? Derek? Any question on this definition? If there is a law of the land, then the um, if, it, if you're talking about the church, the church has to see if the law of the land contradicts the culture of the kingdom and if it does, then we will know whether culture is just loosely held belief or it's a conviction. The difference between a belief and a conviction is that beliefs can change. Convictions send you to prison. People of God have a culture too. People of God have a culture. People of God have a culture. And uh, it is a collective way of thinking, a collective way of thinking like God, a collective way of thinking like God that makes God visible. A collective way of thinking like that. God that makes God visible. How you think will affect how you function. And therefore, if a people call the people of God make it their aim that their culture will be based on how God thinks. And how he thinks is clearly outlined. Paul goes into extremes to send letters to the churches, saying, this is how households are administrated. This is how fathers and mothers are. This is how children should be. This is how slaves are. He covers everything that was societal, but he tells them that this is a culture that applies to your society. You cannot go to the Roman guilds, even though you're a businessman. You cannot bow to Caesar. There are no two gods. You can't bow to Caesar and to God. You can't slum with the demons one day and then sit at the Lord's table. He goes out of his way to establish a culture in a society that was more corrupt, more permeating, more Punishing than what we live in. And so, if we begin to think like God, it's only then that God is made visible. Your culture makes whatever you believe in visible. Why is it that I know certain people come from India, certain people come from China, certain people come from the UK? Their very culture is made evident. What they eat, how they talk, the way they dress... The way they react to weather. This is, culture is God's way. Culture is God's way. Culture is God's way of claiming, of claiming Uh, His people to subscribe to a manner of living, to subscribe to a manner of living. This is what he was trying to do with the slave people that he delivered from Egypt. Let me get you out of there. Exodus was only the beginning. Let me get you out of there. Then let me bring you to Mount Sinai. And in Mount Sinai, let me give you a constitution to live by. And that constitution should make, become your culture. Because that constitution will make you different from every other nation in the world. And that is when Israel begins to want to free itself of restraint. Every time you try to free yourself from the restraints and the order of God, you will always end up with a tyrant. So Israel says, we want a king like others. We don't want... God as our ruler. We want a king like every other nation. And Samuel is heartbroken. And God says, Samuel, stop crying. This is what they want. Give it to them, but tell them what will happen when they receive a king. And he outlines what will happen when you get a king. But Israel still wants a king. What is the plumb line then, guys? The plumb line is the word of God and the spirit of God. And that is why we need debate and questions, because you cannot arrive at a plumb line with one man holding it and saying, this is how you should be. Because then that man becomes a tyrant. I become the bridegroom then, if I'm to hold that plumb line. But in asking questions, in arguing, you can then arrive at the same conclusion that they arrived in, in Acts 15, where they say, it felt good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And then they propose what needs to be proposed. But the plumb line must be derived from the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and it is no one man's opinion or interpretation. And that is why questions must be asked, but we'll talk about how it should be asked. Not how it should be asked, you can ask any which way, but the intent, where are we heading with questions? What is the reason we should ask questions? There will always be an attempt, guys. There will always be an attempt to subvert culture. There will always be an attempt to subvert to subvert culture. Cause it changes, cause it can change, cause it can change the course. It can change the course of a people in one generation. So there will always be an attempt. There will always be an attempt. Satan will always attempt to subvert culture. In one generation, you can lose culture. Judges chapter 2 verse 10, and then there came a generation after Joshua. Who did not know the gods of their Who did not know the god of their fathers? How, in a matter of 35 to 40 years, do children forget the god who brought them out of Egypt into the Promised Land in one generation? Or do look, look at Daniel chapter one, verse three or six, and you see what Nebuchadnezzar did. He gathered to himself about 19,000 or 20,000 young men and women of high quality from Jerusalem, and he brought them to Babylon. And he said, I will teach them the ways of Babylon. And he changed their names. These were Jewish boys and girls. And he had them eat at his table. Kosher food was abandoned. Things were served on the table that a Jew does not eat. Out of 20,000 that were carried to Israel, four refused. 19,996 succumbed. You're talking about 20,000 of the finest of Israel of the future compromised at Nebuchadnezzar's table who completely indoctrinated them in the ways of Babylon. He even changed the names of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because you really don't know their real names, which is Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This has been going on for thousands and thousands of years, and it it is going on even now, and it will happen to us, which is why I'm teaching this. Um, Sometimes, uh, the way it works, uh, Paul put it this way in Acts chapter 20. He said, after I leave, savage wolves will come to ravish you from the outside, and some from within will rise up and cause strife. I'm appointing you as shepherds of the flock to guard the flock against the ravage. So it can happen from outside or it can happen from inside. When culture is, sub, uh, when culture is subverted from within or without, what happens is the church is no longer a place. The church, when culture is sub, subverted, the church is no longer a place Church is no longer a place of presence and it is no longer a pillar of truth. It is no longer a pillar of truth that can combat heresy or the traditions of men. All the traditions of men if culture gets subverted, the church is no longer a place of presence and isn't this a condition of thousands and thousands of churches and do you think anyone begins to build a church with the intent that I want to make sure that I'm a diluted, adulterated, contaminated church everyone starts with the best of intentions like us but there are thousands and thousands of churches like us who at some point get subverted and the church is no longer a place of presence and it's no longer a pillar of truth that can combat the traditions of men heresy is a little easier Traditions of men is difficult. Jesus said it very plainly. There is only one thing that opposes the word. That is stronger than the word. It's the traditions of men. The traditions of men can nullify the word of God. Crazy, eh? That's strong. In 1 Timothy 3.15, we see Paul trying to establish household culture. When I say household, I'm not talking about house churches. Paul used to call every church a household of God. Whether it was met in the house of Herod, whether it met in the house of um, Phoebe, it didn't matter. He called them households. If you go to 1 Timothy 3.15, 1 Timothy 3.15, reading from the NIV, 1 Timothy 3.15, it says there, Although, starting at verse 14, although I, come, I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to. It's not even how, pe- how people I suggest should. How people ought to. There is order. It's not a suggestion. God doesn't make suggestions. If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And then he tells you what God's household is. It is the church of the living God, as in the presence of God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. And so when you read the preceding uh, passages that Paul writes to Timothy with regard to how he needs to set up the household, you'll find that some of the things that come with a culture of a household or a church, culture of a household... Paul defines in four broad categories. One is identity. The second one is relationships. The third one is authority. The fourth one is responsibility. Identity, relationships, authority, responsibilities. These are the four different things that culture affects identity, relationship. Authority, responsibility, culture affects all of this. What is our identity as a church? How do relationships function and what when relationships break? What when relationships go wrong? What when relationships need to be fixed? Authority, how should authority be exerted? How is it exerted wrongly? If it is exerted wrongly, what do you do? And if authority is actually immoral or irresponsible, what should you do? And finally, responsibilities, what is our responsibility? All this is affected by culture. You know, this is not new. As far back as um, um, Numbers or Exodus, do you know what was in the ark? Do you know what, what was in the ark? You had the ark. The ark was made of wood. It was covered with gold. On top was a cover. On the top of the cover was two angels with their wings held out. It was called the mercy seat, and the glory of God would literally dwell between the two angels and where the mercy seat was. And the ark was laid with gold. So we know the ark was the presence of God. What else was in the ark? Tablets. So you had the Ten Commandments, the tablets, that were placed inside the ark? Why were the tablets placed inside the ark? It was to show future generations that this is the moral excellence or the truth of God. It seemed like laws that had to be followed and Jesus completely changed it. You may have heard it said that you should not murder. I say to you that do not even be angry. You may have heard it said that do not commit adultery. I say to you that you should not even look with lust at somebody. You may have heard it said, that it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, that if your neighbor slaps you on one cheek, give him the other cheek. He just ups the ante because he wants to show through the Old Testament that there is a moral excellence that I expect because I am your God. The tablets were supposed to display for generations, this is who I am. It is the excellence of God. What else was there in the ark? Manna. Uh, manna and Aaron's rod, Aaron's staff. You read about it in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3 to 5. Paul is talking about the earth, earthly sanctuary, and he begins to describe it. Manna, what is manna? Deuteronomy 8, three. why did he give manna? He said... From now on, I want you guys to know, Jesus repeated it later on. He said, man shall not live by bread alone. You will not sustain your life by self-generated means of sustenance. You will live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Both the written word and the word that you hear. That this was the only way you were supposed to live. And he said, I humbled you. As in, I want you to come to a place where you let go of any means of operation except the word that proceeds from the mouth of God, be it from the written word or be it from the Holy Spirit when he speaks to us. These are the things that a church must be built on. Paul is talking about it in Hebrews chapter 9, and he says there is a heavenly sanctuary, but let me talk about the earthly sanctuary first and the contents of the ark. And then what was the last one? Aaron's stuff. Why did he put Aaron's staff in the um, uh, ark? Because there came a time when there was a lot of grumbling and murmuring, disorder, confusion, and Korah came with 250 other leaders of the community and said, what makes you think that you are better? We are going to do it our way. And God says to Moses, get me the 12 staffs of the 12 leaders of the tribes. Bring them to me. On Aaron's staff, write the word Levi. Levi and leave it before me. Whichever staff blossoms, that staff will lead from now on. The next day, Aaron's staff blossoms. Korah and his men were destroyed. And God says to Moses, take this staff, put it in the ark, so that it will be a reminder to all of Israel that there will not be grumbling and rebellion in the ranks of the congregation. There was order that was established. Then, in terms of the congregation in the wilderness, and today, in the congregation of Christ. So this is not something new, this has been going on for the last 4,000 years. Both the human problems and God's solution have been consistent unfortunately. Any questions? Any questions? the stronger the stronger the stronger the permeation of culture the stronger the permeation of culture through a people the stronger the permeation of culture through a people the easier it is to move in one mindedness the easier it is to move in one mindedness This is, And once we move in one-mindedness, Psalm 133 happens. What happens in Psalm 133? Two things begin to flow. The first thing that begins to flow is anointing, the oil that drips down Aaron's beard onto his robes. The second thing that begins to flow in verse 3 is blessing. An entire congregation or a people begin to experience these two things. This is not something, a culture is not created through a teaching like this. A culture has to be painstakingly chiseled. Because there are things in our culture at Acts 29 that are defective. There are things that I have taught that need to be reshaped. Culture evolves because God's truth keeps bringing to light newer things, newer things, newer things. So if we want the permeation of culture to A fact is we've got to make sure that whatever is permeating is really good stuff. This is why we need to look at stale stuff and say, out with this, bring in the refreshingly new from the Spirit. It is important. What do you think is happening in the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation? What do you think is happening? These churches, most of them were established by Paul. Paul built well. He builds all those churches. In fact, he was responsible for almost all those churches. Ephesus, Smyrna. And along comes Christ a few years later. And he's sending letters to all the churches. Why? Because they had gone stale. Things had fallen across. Look how far you have fallen from your first love. Each of those letters is, is a call back to get it right. Otherwise, I will come and snuff out your lampstand. What is snuffing out your lampstand? A whole lot of songs, but no presence. Snuffing out your lampstand is not the end of the church. The church can continue, the building can last forever, but you're partaking of the grace of dead people and an institution, not of the living Christ. There is a reason Sunday school needs to be retooled. It's not Betty's fault or Vidisha's fault. There is a reason the church needs to be retooled. It's not Jacob's fault or Derek's fault or May's fault. There is a reason house churches need to be retooled. It's not the leader's fault. Everything must be retooled. Derek must be retooled. May must be retooled. I must be retooled. And so must you. But understand why the contents of the ark were the contents of the ark. And if it permeates, then look at the beautiful thing that happens and everybody benefits. God is true. He does not lie. He does not exaggerate. He does not say things like a tease who makes you jump high and jump higher saying, jump a little higher, jump a little higher. He doesn't do that. When he says something, he plans to deliver. In which case, he's saying that if you begin to operate by the way I think, then here's what I'll do for you you will be able to move in one-mindedness. And the moment one-mindedness happens, two things begin to flow. Anointing, as in the anointing of the Spirit, and blessings. And who benefits? Everybody. Therefore, if you come up with something that is true, then I don't have a choice but to have the humility to match my mind to the truth you have brought up. The entire letter of Philippians is just about this. There were two women fighting, Yodia and Syntyche. Both were Paul's friends. Paul is not laying the blame on anyone. But he says to both of them, listen, you need to fix this. You need to be one-minded. Then he goes on to say, look at Christ. He was equal to God, but he was humble enough to become a slave. Look at me. I have done whatever it needs to be one-minded. Look at Timothy, he's one-minded. Look at Epaphroditus, he's one-minded. Now, dear sisters, would you be one-minded too? As we retool, if things are brought to our attention that, okay, there's a problem with how Sheldon functions. He's the only one not in the room, right? So we can talk behind his back. So there is a way Sheldon functions. Then Sheldon does not have a choice but to be humble enough to change so that one-mindedness may prevail. May none of us be caught resisting one-mindedness because of pride, or because of an opinion, or because of restraint-free independence, or because of a lie, because it will be countered in this church, because it should not be. You are not more important than what Christ wants, though you are important to Christ. Neither am I. Everything radiates from, everything radiates, everything radiates from God crafted, everything must radiate or everything radiates from God crafted biblical ways of collective thinking. It must affect our theology, it must affect our practice, it must affect our mission, it must affect each person. Because God is creating a royal priesthood and a royal priesthood with a peculiar culture that the world will oppose. Part of the reason we are not hated by the world and Jesus' words are not true for us is perhaps because our culture is not completely counter to the world. Jesus said it this way, if you begin to follow me and my words abide in you and you begin to follow my words, I want you to know that you will be hated by the world. Probably we are not countercultural enough. And if you resist, or if I resist, or you resist, isolate or rebel against God-crafted, biblical ways of collective thinking, you will kick against the goads. I know that's not how we talk nowadays. In fact, NIV and ESV don't even use that word. So you can, in India, you'll still see it. Eh? You got this, these buffaloes that plow the field and the um, farmer who drives them has a stick with a very sharp end. And so he'll, he, if the buffalo start misbehaving, he won't poke them. He'll just hold the stick near their feet. So every time they kick, it begins to come against the sharp point and they suddenly line up. This is what happened to Paul. At one point, Jesus says to Paul when he's on the road to Damascus, he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It won't end well for you. Stop kicking against the goads. Meaning, if you rebel, if you isolate, if you resist the truth, it will hurt your feet. Don't. Goads, G-O-A-D-S just what I explained. The thing that pierces them. Yeah. Uh, Like I said, we don't need to use this language. They'll think you're calling someone a toad, so don't go down this road, eh? Yeah. King James James is even worse. It says, uh, do not kick against the pricks. Yeah, so it gets worse. Like in today's, this thing, it would really... Uh, mess of things, so let's uh, I just use that phrase just to show you what happens when I resist the truth, when I rebel against the truth, what happens it it keeps doing this. It hurts you. it hurts you that's what Paul, God was trying to say to Paul. okay so now, how do we debate, how do we discuss, how do we talk there's a culture to that too. Culture is not the interpretation of one man. Culture is not and should not be the interpretation of one man. Of one man trying to promote a doctrine. Trying to promote a doctrine. Trying to promote a doctrine. The goal in all our discussions and debates and all that stuff. The goal, and even with culture, the goal of culture is to conform the body to the maturity or stature of Christ. That should be the goal. If that goal post shifts, it becomes either ugly or personal or self-promoting or the self-promotion of a doctrine or a denomination or a pet theory. This has to be always central that in everything we do to raise up a culture, why are we creating a culture so that people can be conformed to or made mature or conformed to the stature of Christ? If that is not the end goal then it's pointless. What are we trying to do? To think like Christ so that we become like Christ. So if that is not the aim of this teaching, then this teaching is worth nothing. And so, this is why, because it can't be one man's interpretation, because it can't be the promotion of some particular doctrine, culture must evolve, culture must evolve. By that I mean must evolve in the direction that Christ wants it to go. Culture must evolve. It must stand, it must stand the test of debate, questioning, discussions If you go to Acts chapter 15, Acts 15, verse 6 and 7, starting at verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from, the lips, from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. There was a debate or a discussion. If you go to the ESV, it says, um, Acts 15, verse 7, after, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, this was right off the bat, eh? And so there must be discussion and debate. Otherwise, what happens is it is possible for one man's interpretation to rule the roost. And some of the debates have to be one on one because you really want to know what scriptures say. Some of the debates have to be open so that others hear and begin to think. Christians must be thinking people. And things that may have been important five years ago may not be important now because people have caught on to the principle. Forms can change once the principle is caught. In our debates, or discussions, or questions, or whatever you want to call it, in our debates, this is super important, eh? In our debates, the intent is to arrive at the mind of Christ through the Word and spirit. Please, I can't, I can't emphasize this enough. In our questioning, in our discussion, if this is not your intent, hold your peace and do not speak. If this is not your intent, if your intent is not, I must arrive at the mind of Christ. Therefore, I will ask questions because I must think like Christ. If that is not your intent, hold your peace and do not speak because this is not a forum like, um, like the Areopagus in Mars Hill where Paul turned up to speak to Greeks who wanted something trendy to talk about. This is not that kind of a forum. This must be the intent. And if you know this is the intent, then have the confidence to ask questions, discuss and debate. Because that's the way that Jesus used to arrive at the truth when he used to teach and when he was 12 years old standing in the temple. That was the Jewish way of teaching. I'm not saying we need to go Jewish in anything, I'm just saying it was not abnormal. If that is your intent great, but if the intent is not that and it is any one of these things one, brewing dissension and if you don't understand any of it I will explain it, brewing dissension, two, exalting your experience as tragic or as deep as it might be, exalting your experience over the word, or if it is resisting inconvenient truth because you don't like it, because you know what will happen if you agree to it. If it is any of these, then do not speak. This is not a forum for that. You can speak one-on-one, I appreciated the questions that Vivian asked last Sunday. They came from a place where she wanted to know things. Questions must be asked but the intent should be to arrive at the mind of Christ. But if the intent is brewing dissension, or if the intent is exalting my own experience over the word, saying, no, no, but this is true, this is what I have experienced. Well, Jacob, it might be your experience, but it's anecdotal, and it does not match up with the word, or does not confirm with the word, then, Jacob, please hold your experience. Not important. And third, resisting inconvenient truths. Where this is the truth, but it may be the truth, but nah, if it's the truth, then work through the shades of truth that you need to work through, to arrive at white or black. But we can't resist inconvenient truth in this forum through questions. Not done. This is not Mars Hill, and we are not Greeks. There is a Greek restaurant close by though. Any questions before we move on? Any questions? Yep. Yeah. Privately, that's exactly what I said. Come and talk one on one. Yeah. I mean that, uh, guys. There have been times where I know that I have been discussed over lunch in certain homes. It's called pasta roast. That's what people have had for lunch. Not pot roast. It happens. Once in a while if it happens because I've hurt you, that's okay. But if it's a regular thing, do not kick against the goats, guys. I won't be hurt. Sticks and stones. But your shin will pain. No, it hurts me, okay? I'm not impervious to it. When I hear about things that people say, yeah, it bothers me. But it's not so bothersome that it harms me a long time. Yeah, so conspiratorial whispering um, without bringing it up, when it is one of these three things, is not good. You will kick against the goat. We'll talk about how do we deal with then leaders that are not functioning well. What if Jacob is being a jerk? What do we do then? There's culture for that too. Kingdom culture has principles that are binding. Kingdom culture has, that's not Kansas City Chiefs, that's just kingdom culture. Kingdom culture has principles that are binding. When skirted or compromised, when skirted or compromised, when skirted or compromised, we lose our distinctiveness. We lose our distinctiveness and we become like we become like movements in the world we become like organizations or movements in the world so these are binding principles these are not suggestions these are not things that we can skirt around i've seen people better than me pastors that are Uh, more, more, more popular, more prominent, more powerful, more truthful than me skirt these principles to their demise. One of the things that happens when you skirt these principles is like David, you will have war follow your house till the day you die. You will live. You will write Psalm 51. You will write Psalm 139. You will write 40 other good psalms. People will sing it, but the sword will never leave your house. That's what happened to David, because of what he did to Uriah. These are binding. I pray, God, that I don't break them. The other thing is, guys, when I teach this, it is very easy to think, but what about this? What about that? What about this? The reason we are teaching is so that The this and the that and the that that you are thinking about can be addressed. So instead of thinking, what about that guy? What about this guy? What about that that happened? What about this that happened? Stop! The very reason we are teaching it is so that we can correct ourselves. So correct your heart first. You think after teaching this, if I don't do this, you think I won't be judged? I'll be judged harsher than you, man. James chapter 3, verse 1. Think of yourself first, before you think of an incident or think of something else. This is why anyone missing today needs to hear this message, because this is for the entire Acts 29. Okay, so here are the principles that we need to apply. Apply these principles. What when a brother sins against you? Should a brother sin against you? Should a brother or a sister sin against you? What do we do? Let's go to Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Matthew 18:15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you... Uh, In our language, it would be, let him be to you as a Maple Leaf fan or a Vegas Golden Knights fan. Yeah? So that's how it would translate. Meaning, let him be like pariahs to you. So, should a brother sin against you? The first thing is, and sometimes it is hard when the person is a person in authority. eh? So let's assume that James has a problem with me. And he finds me overbearing and too, um, too intimidating. So for him, it might be difficult to come to me and say, I see this fault in you. If that is the case, then James must try and see if he can convey that message to me through someone else who he knows has my ear and can tell me that James has been done harm by me. But if that is not the situation, there is no fear of being overbearing or intimidating, then James, the first thing is James comes to me and talks to me about it. If that doesn't work, Then he takes Nick and Matt with him because Nick and Matt were there when the incident happened and it must be established by two or three witnesses. And when that doesn't work, then you come and tell the church or some of the leaders of the church. And then if that doesn't work, then you should begin to treat Jacob as you would a maple leaf fan. What does that look like? Next Sunday when I turn up in church, nobody turns up. Please come. <laughs> Let's look at another principle. What if, what if a leader sins? What if a leader sins? What if a leader sins? Let's go to First Timothy five. First Timothy five. Nineteen. First Timothy five. 19 to 21. So the first step in the whole uh, if a leader sins is do not entertain an accusation against an elder or a leader in our case unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. As in, just because one person says it is not enough. Have others experienced it? Okay, so nobody was there when this leader did what was wrong. Well then, have you noticed the same thing happening with, um, say, I did harm to Mark, and Mark is just by himself. There was no one around him when I did harm to him. So now what does he do? It cannot be entertained. So he finds out that Jagan went through the same experience, and that Nick went through the same experience. Now something can be established by two or three witnesses. that Jacob has this consistent pattern of doing this. So that's the first step. And if you don't like this, It is binding. It has nothing to do with Acts 29. So, do not entertain an accusation against an uh, uh, elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone. As in, call them out publicly. This is what most churches avoid. They send you off to Dubai or to uh, China for six months uh, and nobody knows what you really did here. Reprove them publicly. So that others may take warning. And then Paul puts in an extra line so that you don't escape the severity of it. And he says, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. That is what is expected of me. If you bring a charge against a leader here and it is proven and there is, it's a habit, this, this is what is asked of. And it, the same applies to me. These are binding. This is part of culture. Let's look at another. How about um, if wholesome, straightforward teaching is contradicted? What if wholesome, straightforward teaching, as in there's no Greek and Hebrew necessary, straightforward teaching. What if it's being taught and uh, it's being um it's being contradicted. What happens then? Let's go to First Timothy three. First Timothy three three to six. No, not first Timothy three. Yeah, first Timothy three. Where am I? This is what if people don't listen to wholesome teaching. They want to contradict wholesome teaching. Okay, I'll have to find the scripture. I thought it was 1 Timothy 3, 3 to 6, but it's not. Okay, on the other hand, guys, since we are talking about leaders and talking about brothers who offend us, what about following Hebrews 13, 17. And this is a, if you're, if you're not leading a house church or something in this church, uh, how sh- is this your attitude? Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Is this how you are? Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Let me read it from the message. Be responsive to your pastoral leaders. Listen to their counsel. They are alert to the condition of your lives and work under the strict supervision of God. Contribute to the joy of the leadership, not its drudgery. Why would you want to make things harder for them? ask yourself that question do you make it harder do you bring them joy because as much as the leaders are responsible our responsibility is also there or how about uh, the other scripture which we all know first timothy 517 first timothy 517 First Timothy 5.17 seventeen. First Timothy 5.17 reading from the NIV the leaders or elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those whose work is preaching and teaching so if your leader, the one in your house church or this leader is doing his work well then he is worthy of double honor and I'm not even talking about money talking about the respect and the honor that must be given worthy of double honor especially those who work in preaching and teaching requires humility from both sides eh? and is that your heart condition is that my heart condition And you thought the kingdom of God had no culture. My God, he's got a constitution full of how households must be administrated. And then if those, there are those that are floundering, go to Jude. And we land with that and go to something else. Jude, Jude 1, 17. Jude one seventeen. But remember, dear friends, reading from the message, that the apostles of our Master Jesus Christ told us this would happen. In the last days, there will be people who don't take these things seriously anymore. They'll treat them like a joke and make a religion of their own whims and lusts. These are the ones who split churches, thinking only of themselves. There's nothing to them, no sign of the Spirit. But you, dear friends, carefully build yourselves up in the most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit, staying right at the center of God's love, keeping your arms open and outstretched, ready for the mercy of our Master Jesus Christ. This is the unending life, the real life. Go easy on those who hesitate in the faith. Go after those who take the wrong way. Be tender with sinners, but not soft on sin. The sin itself stinks to high heaven. Hopefully I'll be back next Sunday to continue with this. But um, two of the things I wanted to talk about is what must we expect of shepherds and why do we need shepherds? What must we expect of shepherds and why do we need shepherds? I wanted to read a certain passage. Go to Numbers 11. Numbers 11. Why do we need shepherds? Numbers 11, this is what Moses is expected to do, but because people were being difficult, he started whining about it. The process of shepherding is not easy. As wonderful as this church is, and I know I've said that many, many, many times. And I mean it, and sometimes thinking of it makes me weep, especially during Christmas. But, and it's coming soon. But, <laughs> but, but here's what is expected of a shepherd. And you can read Ezekiel 34, and it'll say it again. But Moses started whining because it was getting really difficult for him. Let me read it from the NIV. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their, tes, uh, to their, uh, to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. Moses asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell them to carry me in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised? on oath to the ancestors. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own ruin. That's when he's whining. Now let's turn it to the positive. Okay, this is what a shepherd, be it in a house church with two people, or in a church with 50 people is supposed to do. Here's what they're supposed to do. I conceived these people, I gave them birth. I will carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you have promised them. I will find meat to feed all these people. When they wail, I'll find meat. I will carry these people by myself. The burden may be heavy, but I will continue going through it. Give me life so that I may continue with this. This is what you do with your children. Moses was whining because it got difficult. My hope is that every person in this church at some point will become a shepherd. Why do we need shepherds? Because if there aren't enough shepherds, there won't be enough sheep. Go to Matthew. Go to Matthew um, nine thirty-five to thirty-eight. Matthew nine thirty-five to thirty-eight. We think he was praying for missionaries. He was not praying for missionaries. He saw people and he saw that they were sheep without a shepherd. So he said, ask for more. Ask for more what? Shepherds. Why? So that the sheep may not be shepherdless. So what does that mean? That means that at some point, Matt Dirts and Vignesh and Vidisha and Sharon and Josh and Jonathan and James and... Anybody here should be able at one point to say, Aha, I have learned enough. I can now begin to shepherd. But there are binding rules. There is order. Without it, it doesn't happen. That is what the harvest is requiring. But we'll talk about all that Next week, In Ezekiel thirty four, it says, Shepherds bind the injured, shepherds, shepherds bind the injured. Shepherds carry the young. Shepherds feed. Shepherds search for strays. Shepherds lay down their lives. One of the things I wanna do during our break from house church is to gather the shepherds that lead house churches right now and say to them, these are the areas that you need to be better in. These are the areas that you need to pull up your socks in so that everybody has an experience next year of more of the Father through you than less of the Father through you. That's the intent. But these are some of the things shepherds do. The strange thing is, this is not advertised. Nobody is going around Jane is not going around or um, I'm not going around saying this is what I did. So let me be foolish like Paul said in Second uh, Corinthians 12. There are people in this church who WhatsApp Heidi and me at any time in the night. 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. It doesn't matter which country I am or Heidi is. 2 o'clock. And either she or I will get up then and pray for that person. And this is not just one. I'm talking about this church, I'm not even talking about Bahrain or some other place. So when you sometimes hear stories of, oh, doesn't look like this person is being taken care of, doesn't look like that person is being taken care of, don't believe everything. The ones you have in this church are better than me or Heidi. And they will be better coming January 2024. They'll pull themselves out even more. Because we want to create a culture that is counter to the world, counter to the best organizations in the world. The strange thing is some of you are already shepherds who can function really well. But if you are restraint free, independent shepherds, you ain't a real shepherd. You're a hireling. Any questions? What's the difference between a hireling and a shepherd? Very simple, they come in through the gate and the gate is the spirit of God and the Christ. And they come into the body. That's the difference between a hireling and a shepherd. Both can shepherd well. But one is a hireling, one is a shepherd. How do we know the difference? Jesus said it this way. The true shepherds come in through the gate. That is how you distinguish between skilled shepherds. But one is a hireling, one is real. Real. Uh, how do you know you're ready to be a shepherd? Uh, have some of these things. Are some of these things what you're already doing? Are you binding up the injured? Are you carrying the young? Are you feeding those that are hungry? Are you searching for strays? Are you laying down your life? But how would you know what to feed them if you haven't been fed? How would you know how to bind the injured if you haven't been taught? If I bind an injury and Rhonda or uh, Heidi bind an injury... One will make it more septic, one will heal. Because I'll tear off a strip from my shirt, it won't help you. How does carrying the young look? So, unless I learn it, how am I going to? Teach it. These are the things that are required. And the Spirit of God can teach us. And let there be no argument about this. The Spirit of God can teach us directly, but He uses people to teach us. I've been through this argument so many times, I'm tired of it. Yes, the anointing is here to teach us, but the anointing is upon people to equip us to do exactly what the Spirit of God wants. It is not either or. So let's not go through that argument. Some things, like Paul says, let's not visit it over and over again. These are, these are, these are, these are fundamental things that have been spoken about so many times, let's not waste time visiting it. Laying on of hands, whether the Spirit uses people, whether it does not. These have been spoken for the last 17 years. Let's move on. But that's the way we do it. And so, one, one should begin doing that anyways. One should have a desire to do it. Why? Because we want to be like our great shepherd. And then, when you learn to do this, and you show yourself faithful, first with one or two sheep, and then with 50, and then with 100. And when you begin to lay down your life to go after that one sheep that has strayed, oh my God, you look like Christ. And during this process, guys, you will find a lot of defects and faults with the shepherds in this church. But I pray that every six months, you will see them getting better. That every six months they will get better. And if they don't get better, then there's a problem. But then the same requirement is off you, right? If you're not a shepherd today, then the same requirement is off you. You must get better too. Let's pray. Jesus loved teaching on culture. You are a straight God. I love your straightness. You're not a God who suggests things. You are trying to create a kingdom. Kingdoms on earth? My God! They know how to make things work. Their kings are tyrants. You are benevolent. And yet the word Lord actually comes from a Greek word, which means absolute sovereign and almost tyrannical, yet you are not. So we move from the idea of king to Lord right now, because we are not too used to kings. We don't know how that works. But we know masters. We know bosses that lay down a line saying, this is how this company works. We look at what you have spoken, what the word says, and you're laying down line saying, I am wanting to create a counterculture with you. These are the things that I have established for that. Walk in them. It is not a suggestion, Jacob. You cannot mess around with this. So I take it to heart of oh God. I pray, Father, that I might not compromise your word to save someone's backside or to save mine own. That even after teaching like this with this kind of strength that I'm teaching with, that I will also have the humility to say, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong. Only you can do that, Father, because we as humans, sometimes our hearts are deceptive and proud. But Father, give us a new boldness in this church. Give a newness to the leaders in this church, the present shepherds. Give a desire to others in this church to say, I want to be this, I want to be this. Is there anyone here who was created a follower and not a leader, oh God? Do you create people like that? You only create sons and servants. You don't create leaders and followers. You want more shepherds. You said pray, ask the Holy Spirit to send more laborers. I pray, O God, send more laborers. Raise from this church more shepherds. If there aren't enough shepherds, there can't be more sheep. And Father, to the ones that have the ability of shepherds, but are not entering through the gate, Father, show them that they are hirelings, and they will never qualify for shepherding unless they enter through the gate. If not in this church, then in some other church. Father, I thank you for the fire that you're putting in our belly to establish a culture that measures up to the plumb line of Christ. Nothing less. You deserve this, O oh God. This is your bride. We cannot costume her in anything but what you have prescribed. She's too pure. You're waiting for her to be blemishless. Oh God, we come saying, please make us better by January. Let my heart be more compassionate, more shepherd-like. Let hearts of the leaders here become hearts that pour out and do what Ezekiel 34 asks. This is my cry above for this church, for your sake, for the sake of the people here, for the sake of the leaders. Grant it, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool, guys. If you need prayer, as usual, people will pray with you. And God is here. And as usual, God will answer. Yeah. I'll see you next week. I hope to make it back by Sunday.